and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Today's episode is the second of two episodes about the Empire of Japan and the social and political changes it experiences in the middle of the 1800s. This is an event known as the Meiji Restoration. If you'd like to hear the first part of the story in its entirety, you can find it in the last episode, episode 43, The Southern Barbarians. If you'd rather not listen to that, well, here is a quick refresher. Starting in 1603, Japan comes to the end of more than a century of civil war. At this time, it is ruled by the Tokugawa shogunate, which is a fusion of a caste system and a military dictatorship. Contact with the outside world is strictly limited, and the shogun maintains the loyalty of the landowning nobility, known as daimyos, by enforcing the boundaries of their lands and ensuring internal peace. This period, called the Edo period, is a long period of peace for Japan, where art and literature flourish. But with little outside contact, the shogunate becomes stagnant. Where we left off last episode in the 1850s, Commodore Matthew C. Perry leads a U.S. diplomatic mission, augmented by naval power, and successfully negotiates the opening of Japanese ports to American trade. Truth be told, the Japanese at this time fear Western military power, because their military technology is over 200 years out of date. So, by the end of the 1850s, they have agreed to trade not just with the U.S., but also with France, Britain, and Russia, and soon the official policy of isolation is no more. Japan needs to modernize, and quickly. But the old social order still benefits many of the people at the top, while the people at the bottom and even many of the samurai, Japan's warrior class, well, these people are only experiencing the downsides of modernization. British historian Christopher Harding explains the social climate in his book A History of Modern Japan. He writes, quote, The shogunate achieves stability at the cost of flexibility with the codification of everyday life stretching even into which foods and fabrics people of differing social status might enjoy. Fine silks for samurai, down through the plainer kind for townspeople, merchants and artisans, finishing at rough cotton for lowly peasants. For a long while, these arrangements seemed to be just what a war-torn country needed to recover its balance but they were too brittle to cope with longer-term change, and by the early 1800s, the rot appeared to be setting in. Japan found itself beset by weak leadership and a flagging economy, alongside periodically failing crops. Society was in turmoil as low-born farmers and merchants got steadily richer, while samurai families, on inadequate stipends and forbidden from working in potentially lucrative professions, slipped into poverty. In 
Crop failures and fluctuations in the monetary system caused pain around the country. But some were able to pass it on. The shogunate could lean on daimyo for rice or cash. The daimyo, in turn, pressurized their samurai retainers. Merchants could hike prices or alter their rates of exchange, while wealthier country families could make new demands of, or dispose with the paid labor of, weaker ones. For those at the bottom, however, there was only desperation. Famine and forced migration became so bad at times that the authorities took to the surveillance of pregnant women and young mothers to prevent a loss of rural productivity through abortion and through a practice known by the agricultural euphemism of mabiki, thinning out the seedlings to ensure better growth for the rest. Infanticide. A guiding principle in the Neo-Confucian ethics in the time was mutuality. Within the social order, as within each family, the higher could expect of the lower, but the lower could expect from the higher too. Service traveled one way, care the other. What this meant in practice was that protest against insufficiently solicitous superiors was a right, even a duty, in the interests of restoring the social order. Many of the tens of thousands of protesters whom the leaders of late Tokugawa Japan saw as enemies were in fact quite clearly its products. They saw themselves not as rebelling against intellectual values of sincerity, selflessness, and self-cultivation, but as practicing them properly. Unquote. Harding is writing at this point about conditions in Japan just before the country opens up to the world. So you can imagine how much unrest is simmering right under the surface once that opening happens. Even strong, unified states can be vulnerable to this kind of major unrest. Just look at the Russian Revolution as one example. But Japan in the mid-1800s is anything but a strong state. Each daimyo, each local lord, has broad authority to make laws within their own domains, as long as those laws don't conflict with the shoguns. More importantly, there is no single centralized military command structure. Instead, the military still runs on feudal principles, with each daimyo commanding and equipping their own samurai. The shoguns have remained in power by maintaining the loyalty of enough daimyos that at any given time they control an overwhelming proportion of Japan's military. And since 1603, they've done a pretty good job. The vast majority of daimyos have benefited from a stable political system. Now, though, a number of daimyos are upset. See, when I say that the shogun is weak, what I mean is that the Tokugawa family is starting to lose allies. Opening Japan to the West is seen as a humiliation, and in some ways it is. For example, if a Western merchant or sailor commits a crime, they're handed over to their own consular authorities, 
not to the Japanese authorities. They are judged under Western laws, not under Japanese laws. And as a result of these kinds of embarrassments, a lot of formerly loyal daimyos are whispering among themselves about a change in leadership. There are also a few daimyos who have always hated the shogun, but have lacked the power to act. These are the daimyos whose ancestors were defeated by Tokugawa Ieyasu, the founder of the Tokugawa shogunate. And these individuals are mostly in the south of Japan. The most powerful are the Satsuma Domain on the southern end of the island of Kyushu, which is the southern island of Japan, and this Satsuma Domain actually dominates the Ryukyu Kingdom, which is a small island nation to the south that will eventually be absorbed into Japan. The island of Okinawa is part of the Ryukyu Kingdom. Another major opponent to the Shogun is the Choshu Domain. This is on the southern tip of the main island of Honshu, just north of Kyushu. And the Choshu Domain also has a historic hatred of the Tokugawa family. They actually have a little ritual that's performed at dawn on the first day of the year. In this ritual, the daimyo's chief retainer will come to him and ask, Has the time come to begin the subjugation of the shogunate? And the daimyo will respond with, It is still too early. It's been too early for a long time now, but perhaps it will not be too early for much longer. If you are a disaffected daimyo looking for an alternative to the shogun, you have a couple of choices. First, you could try to seize power for yourself, become the new shogun. But that would be a risky proposition, and the other daimyos would come together to block this kind of naked power grab. You'd never be able to get away with it. On the other hand, you could build a coalition of daimyo to challenge the shogunate, but this puts you back in the same place, right? Who would lead the coalition? If it's only one daimyo, it starts to look like a power grab again. If only there were someone else, some other leader you could rally behind, Someone who has legitimacy with the daimyos and the samurai and the merchants and the common people. Well, Japan does have such a person. The emperor. For centuries, the emperor has lived in seclusion in the city of Kyoto. He has an almost spiritual role in Japanese society, and the shogun officially rules in his name. I've heard some people describe him as being kind of like the Pope, but that's not even an accurate analogy, because the Pope gives speeches and goes on official papal visits to other countries, and the Emperor does none of this. 
When I say the Emperor lives in seclusion, I mean that he lives in the Imperial Palace compound for his entire life and only speaks with family members and official retainers. In the 1850s, there's a movement to change this, and it starts with people called Shishi. Shishi are political activists who promulgate a movement called Sonojoi. In Japanese, Sonojoi means revere the emperor, expel the barbarians. This is a brilliant slogan. It's an appeal to protect Japanese culture and heritage from what the Shishi view as corruption. Many prominent people officially endorse the Sonojoi movement, including the daimyos of those two anti-Tokugawa domains we already mentioned, Satsuma and Choshu. And those daimyos become important leaders in the movement. To complicate things further, the shogunate isn't actually ruled by the shogun at this point. If you remember from last episode, Tokugawa Yasada, the current shogun, is medically unfit to lead the country. So Japan is governed by a council of elders. In 1858, that council is led by a man named Ii-Nao-Suke. Ii tries to cool the tensions, and he does this with a combination of accommodation and repression. On the accommodation front, he tries to strengthen ties with the Emperor Komei. That's the current emperor. In January 1858, for the first time since the founding of the Tokugawa shogunate, an official delegation arrives in Kyoto from the shogun. And this delegation is asking to consult with the emperor about what to do about the foreign merchants and all of their ports. This leads to a stream of delegates going back and forth between Edo and Kyoto. Ii is trying to keep the emperor on the shogunate's side, and that's not a guarantee. See, Emperor Komei has heard of the Sonojoi movement, and for him, revere the emperor, expel the barbarians, sounds like a great idea. And anti-shogunate daimyos are also spending time in Kyoto, whispering in the emperor's ear. We talked about the government's accommodations to the Sonojoi movement. Well, what about repression? On that front, Iinasuke engages in something called the Anse Purge. Between 1858 and 1860, over 100 prominent opponents to the regime's trade policies are executed, exiled, or put under house arrest. During this same time, the Sonojoi faction also grows bolder. Some shishi turn to violence and commit terrorist killings of Westerners and prominent pro-trade Japanese. We're probably talking about less than 100 killings, but they're carried out with samurai swords, for the most part, not with modern weapons. 
This is an homage to traditional Japanese culture, but it's also designed to scare Westerners. The idea that at any point you might be murdered in your sleep with a samurai sword is pretty terrifying. So, a lot of Western merchants start sleeping with loaded pistols under their pillows. On March 24, 1860, the head of government, Iinasuke himself, will become a victim. He's surrounded by 60 bodyguards walking towards the gate of the shogun's palace when 16 Son of Joy samurai attack the guards at the front. They're not trying to cut their way through and kill him. Instead, the attack on the front of the guard formation is just a distraction. The real assassin is using a Japanese-made copy of an American cult revolver. And as Ii Naosuke's guards rush towards the attackers at their front, a 17th assassin approaches from behind, and with a single shot, he dispatches the undefended Ii Naosuke. It's interesting, even at this point, how much of a role religion has to play in what's going on. See, the assassins each carry a copy of a manifesto explaining their actions, and it says in part, quote, While fully aware of the necessity for some change in policy since the coming of the Americans at Uraga, it is entirely against the interests of the country and a stain on the national honor to open up commercial relations with foreigners, to admit foreigners into the castle, to conclude treaties with them, to abolish the established practice of trampling on the picture of Christ, to allow foreigners to build places of worship for the evil religion, and to allow three foreign ministers to reside in the land. Therefore, we have consecrated ourselves to be the instruments of heaven, to punish this wicked man, and we have taken on ourselves the duty of ending a serious evil by killing this atrocious autocrat. Ii's successor, Ando Nobumasa, stops the official purges, but he continues trying to unite the shogun and the emperor in an effort to defang the Sonojoy movement. By now, there is a new shogun, Tokugawa Iemochi, but in 1860, Iemochi is only 14 years old, so the council is still running the country. And what Ando Nobumasa does is arrange a marriage between the shogun and the Emperor Kamei's sister. Ando is forced out of office in 1863, and at the age of 16, the young shogun Tokugawa Iemochi makes an official procession to Kyoto. Now, this is significant, because while the shogun has always ruled in the emperor's name, it's kind of been a legal fiction, and it's been one for some time. In fact, it's been 230 years since a shogun has gone to Kyoto in person. 
So the fact that Tokugawa Iemochi is starting out his reign with a formal submission to the emperor is a pretty big deal. It's also worth noting at this point that there are some changes happening on the foreign policy front. Despite being a smaller power, the United States has dominated Western relations with the Japanese during this period, but in 1861, the American Civil War breaks out and American warships return to U.S. waters to fight the Confederacy. Well, nature abhors a power vacuum, and the British and French step in to fill the gap. And to put things in perspective, in 1863, some daimyos will start shooting at foreign ships again. And when the French and British invite the Americans to participate in a punitive expedition, the U.S. Navy can only send a single small ship, and this ship can't even keep up with the rest of the joint fleet, so to preserve American honor, its guns are actually transferred to a faster, privately contracted ship. This gives you an idea of <laughs> how much naval power the U.S. is able to project during the Civil War, and it's not much. So for the rest of this story... When we talk about the West, we're no longer talking mainly about the Americans. We are mostly talking about the British and the French. While Tokugawa Iemochi's submission to the emperor is designed to pacify the Sonojoy movement, his perceived softness on trade makes it difficult for him to rule, right? Remember, there are two parts to the Sonojoy movement— revere the emperor and expel the barbarian. Well, he has revered the emperor, but Tokugawa Iemochi has not expelled the barbarian, and terrorist attacks continue, most notably in February of 1863, when a group of torch-wielding samurai fight through the marine guards at the British consulate in Edo and burn it to the ground. As I mentioned, there are some incidents of firing on Western warships. In 1862, the Satsuma Domain, right, that domain down on the southern island of Kyushu that is not terribly loyal to the shogun to begin with, well, the Satsuma Domain opens fire on some British ships. This is an incident that will become important because a year later, in 1863, the British will return and bombard the Satsuma capital city of Kagoshima. And an interesting thing happens. See, the Satsuma overlords may be supporters of the Sonojoy, revere the emperor, expel the barbarian, but their number one goal is the elimination of the Tokugawa shogunate. Everything else is kind of optional, and the British artillery that they have seen bombarding their own city, well, these are the best cannons they've ever seen, so they start to waffle on the whole expel the barbarian thing, and they open up a trading channel through a Nagasaki-based Scottish merchant named Thomas Blake Glover. 
and through Glover, the Satsuma domain quietly acquires modern heavy artillery and rifles that are far better than anything the Edo government can put in the field. Instead of expelling the barbarians, the Satsuma domain is directly trading with them. But then, also in 1863, the Emperor Komei issues a famous proclamation called the Order to Expel the Barbarians. This is the first official imperial proclamation in centuries, and it is in order to expel all foreigners from Japan within two months. The Tokugawa shogunate cannot comply with this. Not that they don't want to, not that it's impractical. They literally can't. They have trade treaties with all kinds of Western powers who will come back with guns very angry if the shogunate does not hold up their end of these trade treaties, so they do not follow through on the emperor's proclamation. And this leads the Choshu domain to launch their long-dreamed-of rebellion against the shogunate. They begin by opening fire on western ships, using modern artillery and even steamships they had purchased from the United States. This leads to the combined English-French-American retaliatory strike I already mentioned. Chochu forces then launch a surprise attack against the shogun's soldiers in Kyoto. These soldiers are holding the emperor captive. They're officially just guarding him, but everybody knows they're there to make sure that the emperor is under the close watch of the shogunate and not one of these oppositional daimyos. Now, this Choshu attack on the shogun's soldiers fails, but in the process, a fire breaks out. And this happens a lot in Japanese history because so much of their architecture is wooden. The fire spreads and it burns down most of Japan's ancient capital. The perpetrators are arrested, but when Tokugawa launches a punitive expedition against Choshu in 1866, it becomes obvious how woefully unprepared for war the shogun's troops are. Surprisingly, other than the Choshu domain, all of the other daimyo are officially remaining loyal, even the daimyo um, from Satsuma. And the imperial army has around 100,000 men against only about 4,000 Choshu soldiers. Now, you might think that that gives the shogun a winning advantage, but that's not exactly the case, see? By this point, the Tokugawa shogunate has expanded on their feudal army with a new conscript army. So for the first time in a very long time in Japan, you have ordinary people, non-samurai, taking up arms with the sanction of the government. 
And unfortunately, all the Shogun has for these people are old-school muskets, which fire low-accuracy spherical projectiles, and they're woefully out of date by this time. The Choshu forces, on the other hand, have modern mini-ball rifles, which have better range and accuracy. Oh, and not all of the Shogun's troops even have those cheap, outdated muskets. Many of them, possibly the majority of the daimyo's troops, are still carrying spears into battle. Now, the Tokugawa military leaders aren't completely incompetent. They know their army is outdated, and they've even instituted reforms. At this time, the French army is widely considered the best in the world, and the shogunate has brought in French military advisors to train and drill their troops. But at the time of this expedition, the French advisors have only trained around 900 men, and the rest of the core Tokugawa army is still using old, outdated tactics. Worse... The allied daimyos have their own tactics and equipment. Again, this is a feudal system. A lot of the shogun's troops are from these separate daimyos, and they all have their own way of doing things, so it's very difficult to get this army to coordinate and fight as a united whole. As a result, the punitive expedition is an unmitigated disaster. The Tokugawa forces are constantly outmaneuvered, and even when they're able to bring their superior numbers to bear, Choshu discipline and technology allows them to salvage a series of fighting retreats. Eventually, the humiliated Tokugawa army is forced to withdraw, and with the shogunate now looking weaker than ever, Satsuma Domain joins the rebellion. Two major deaths also complicate things at this juncture. In August of 1867, the shogun Tokugawa Iemochi dies unexpectedly at the age of 20, and 29-year-old Tokugawa Yoshinobu takes the position. Only a few months later, in January of 1868, Emperor Komei contracts smallpox and also dies and he is replaced by his 14-year-old son, Mutsuhito, who will be known to history as the Emperor Meiji. This new emperor, the Emperor Meiji, is still too young to be personally involved in events. That will come later. But right from the outset, he is a rallying point for all the same people who had rallied behind the previous emperor which means anyone who's not happy with Tokugawa rule. By that point, this includes many of the Tokugawa family's former supporters. They're exhausted after years of embarrassing failures. The new shogun, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, recognizes that he does not have enough support to militarily maintain his rule. And rather than risk full-on civil war, he abdicates the title of shogun 
on November 19, 1867. And there, things might have ended. But the Tokugawa family remains a regional power in Japan, and the various shogunal government apparatuses remain in place, so there is a chance that someone else, maybe even another Tokugawa, could step into the position. Moreover, the emperor has agreed to let Tokugawa Yoshinobu maintain temporary rule over the country, while the daimyos meet and decide on a future form of government. And the daimyos might even have peacefully drafted a new constitution. But the Choshu and Satsuma leaders, the ones who really hate the Tokugawas, well, they decide to launch a surprise attack on the imperial palace in Kyoto. They do this without firing any shots. It's a pretty meticulous plan, and the palace is occupied with merely the threat of armed force. But the child emperor is now in the hands of would-be rebel daimyo. On January 3, 1868, the young emperor Meiji, at the urging of the Choshu and Satsuma-friendly occupiers, he makes an announcement. He acknowledges that Tokugawa Yoshinobu has stepped down as shogun, and he says that instead of appointing a new shogun, he is reassuming his full powers as emperor. This is the official historic date of the Meiji Restoration, the day that the Emperor Meiji returns to full power, the first Japanese emperor in centuries to have any real power. Unfortunately, this move only precipitates a civil war because Emperor Meiji doesn't just declare that he's taking back all of his powers. See, Saigo Takamori, who is the head of Satsuma Domain's army, who is right there in Kyoto now, well, he is one of the most powerful figures surrounding the Emperor Meiji. And he doesn't just want the shogunate abolished. He hates the Tokugawa family. He wants their land seized. And this is also written into the Emperor's announcement. So, instead of going along with the announcement, which he probably would have done, uh, Tokugawa Yoshinobu refuses to accept it, and two weeks later, on January 17th, he formally announces his rejection. Now, Japan is suddenly plunged into a civil war between imperial forces and shogunate forces. This war is called the Boshin War, because Boshin is the Japanese word for the year 1868. Once again, the imperial forces are going to be better armed, not just with better rifles, but also with Armstrong field artillery. These are state-of-the-art cannons. Tokugawa Yoshinobu appeals to Western powers to stop trading with the rebels, but Britain, France, and the rest all adopt policies of neutrality. They're not going to take part in a Japanese civil war. They're going to trade with both sides. 
and despite all the rhetoric from the Imperials about expelling the Barbarian, the Western powers know that's not going to happen. The Japanese need their trade. So they're hedging their bets, and they're making sure that they're on reasonably good terms with whichever side ends up winning. Unfortunately for the Shogun, this means that the Imperial forces will maintain a technological advantage throughout all the fighting. For the first ten days of the war, the two sides are in a standoff, with the Imperialist troops occupying Kyoto and Tokugawa forces occupying nearby Osaka Castle. What happens next is described by American historian D. Colin Jean Drill in his book Samurai to Soldier, Remaking Military Service in 19th Century Japan. Jean Drill writes, quote, The standoff ended on January 27, 1868, when Yoshinobu announced his intention to discuss Satsuma's treachery with the Kyoto court. He would make the trip to Kyoto accompanied by 15,000 men. The shogunate's infantry units probably made up about half of that total. 5,000 soldiers from Satsuma, Choshu, and Tosa were waiting for them at the two road junctions of Toba and Fushimi just south of the capital. The Kyoto court's army, as the rebel domains now styled themselves, repulsed poorly coordinated attacks at both positions. Tokugawa leaders exercised little or no command and control over their forces throughout the day. After the opening moves of the battle, there was no overall commander on the field, leaving the various units of the shogunal army to launch piecemeal attacks on their own. This poor coordination nullified any numerical advantage and allowed loyalist forces to shuttle troops from Fushimi to Toba and vice versa at will. The training, experience, and equipment of the shogunate's western-style infantry units mattered little if commanders were unable to employ them to decisive effect. In the end, although Tokugawa forces held briefly against a late-day counterattack on the 27th, a series of loyalist attacks on the 28th and 29th sent them reeling back to Osaka. On January 30th, Yoshinobu and his closest advisors left for Edo by ship. The units remaining in Osaka were ordered to retreat to Edo as directly as possible. Although several hundred men managed to return to the east, the shogunate's ability to resist the Loyalist challenge had completely collapsed. Unquote. Shortly thereafter, in March, Yoshinobu flees Edo as well, and by May, the shogunate's historic capital surrenders to imperial forces. Fighting continues in the north for several months, but by now, even the government's ministers have acknowledged the Emperor Meiji as head of state, and only a handful of daimyos continue to resist. On April 6, 1868, we have another historic date in Japan's history. This is the day that the Emperor Meiji takes something called the Charter Oath. In this oath, the emperor agrees to govern according to certain principles, and these principles will serve as the founding philosophy of the new Japanese empire. They are, quote, 1. Deliberative assemblies shall be established on an extensive scale, and all governmental matters shall be determined by public discussion. 2. 
All classes, high and low, shall unite to carry out vigorously the plan of government. 3. All classes shall be permitted to fulfill their just aspirations so that there will be no discontent. 4. Evil customs of the past shall be discontinued, and new customs shall be based on the just laws of nature. 5. Knowledge shall be sought throughout the world in order to promote the welfare of the empire. Unquote. This is a far cry from Revere the Emperor, Expel the Barbarian, and it goes to show you just how much attitudes have changed over the past decade. The hardliners, who were willing to start a civil war to prevent foreign influence, are now saying that Japan needs to seek knowledge throughout the world, and they're doing it in their government's founding document. And I say they because, remember, the emperor is only a teenager right now. So we can safely assume that anything he's saying is really coming from his advisors. Even so, this is a teenager with a ton of symbolic importance. In October, Emperor Meiji makes a triumphal march into Edo, symbolizing the downfall of the shogunate, and the emperor's rise to true power. And during this visit to Edo, he gives the city a new name, Tokyo, which means Eastern Capital. This symbolic renaming of the old shogunate's capital comes around the same time as the defeat of the last significant resistance on Japan's main island. Conflict will continue through most of 1869 over the northern island of Hokkaido. Some of the last Tokugawa allies have fled there, along with their French military advisors, and they've established a republic based on the American model, although only the samurai class are eligible to vote. This republic, the Republic of Izo, tries to get recognition from foreign governments, but Nobody is interested in talking to them. The Republic even offers to become a tributary state of the Emperor, as long as they're able to keep their old samurai traditions, but the Imperial faction isn't having it. The Emperor will rule all of Japan, including the island of Hokkaido. On March 20th, 1869, a hastily assembled imperial fleet sets sail for Hokkaido, carrying more than 7,000 troops. That's more than the Republic of Izo's 3,000 or so troops, but the imperial navy still has to land these troops on shore, and the Republic of Izo actually has a roughly equivalent navy, including some steam-driven ships. To get the troops safely to shore, the Imperial Navy is relying on their flagship, the Kotetsu. The Kotetsu is an ironclad warship of modern design. It was built by the French and was originally intended for delivery to the Confederate States of America before the French implemented a policy of not trading arms to the South. Following the U.S. Civil War, the ship was transferred to the United States government, who no longer needed it, so they sold it to the Tokugawa shogunate. 
but by the time it was delivered, the Emperor Meiji was in charge, and that's how the Imperial Japanese Navy manages to put an ironclad into service so quickly. Anyway, if the Republic of Izo is going to stop the Imperial forces from landing, they'll have to stop this ironclad. And they come up with a plan that's so crazy, it might just work. They decide to sail their flagship, the Kaiten, right up to the Kotetsu, board it, and take it for themselves. They actually have a French advisor named Henri Nicole, who had seen the Kotetsu being built in the French shipyard and is familiar with the general ship type. He's going to help them to run this ship once they capture it. And to catch the crew of the Imperial flagship off guard, the Republic of Izo is going to use a little bit of trickeration. In his book, Admiral Togo, Nelson of the East, British author Jonathan Clements describes this battle, called the Battle of Miyako Bay. There are a couple of characters in this quote that are worthy of explanation. The first, Kalash, is Eugene Kalash. This is a French advisor who helped to plan this battle and who commands the Takao, which is a smaller ship that accompanies the Kaiten in its attack. The second character worth mentioning is Togo. This is Togo Hihachiro, who will one day become a Japanese national hero as an admiral in the Russo-Japanese War. But at this time, he is a young samurai serving in the Imperial fleet. Here is what Jonathan Clemens has to say. Quote, The Izo fleet got underway again, armed with new intelligence that the Imperial fleet was indeed in nearby Miyako Bay. However, the Takao's engines continued to give trouble, causing Kalash to drop further behind the Kaiten until the lead vessel was barely a speck on the horizon. Reduced to a crawl of three knots, Kalash was forced to chug slowly towards Miyako, even as the first signs of battle erupted in the distance. It was daybreak on the morning of the 6th of May, 1869. Some of the Imperial sailors were ashore at Miyako, but not Togo, who was aboard the Kasuga with his gun crew. He was, therefore, awake in time to see the approach of two unknown ships. The foremost was flying the Stars and Stripes. Some distance behind her, a second warship was flying the Russian ensign. The American ship was actually the Kaiten, whose complement included Henri Nicole and the suicidally heroic samurai of the Shinsengumi. However, the Kaiten was not immediately recognizable, even to these such as Togo who had seen her before, as two of her three masts had been lost in a storm, radically changing the shape she presented to observers. After the choppy waters of the previous night, the sea was once again calm, and a bright spring sun turned the polished steel and brass of swords and machinery into dazzling sparkles of light. As the American ship came perilously close to the Kotetsu, she ran down her U.S. flag and replaced it with the chrysanthemum and star of the Republic of Izo. Before any of the Imperial sailors had the time to register the implications, the Kaiten rammed into the Kotetsu and discharged her guns right into the unsuspecting sailors on deck. Now was the time for the Shinsengumi to board the ship, swords in hand. However, 
Henri Nicole's role as advisor and expert, while well-intentioned, had failed to inform the would-be hijackers of the relative height differences between the two ships. The squat, low Kotetsu only had a forecastle and stern at a height that matched that of the decks of the Kaiten. As a paddle steamer with bulky wheels at her sides, the Kaiten could not come directly alongside, but was instead forced to ram the Kotetsu at an angle. At the single place where the prow of the Kaiten touched the hull of the Kotetsu, the Kaiten loomed over her prey by a difference of three meters. This was a major flaw in Nicole's plan, which required the samurai of the Shinsengumi to leap over the gunwales like a swarm of old-fashioned pirates. Instead, their approach was considerably slowed. They had to queue to get into the limited platform afforded by the prow, and even then they were only able to drop, roll, and swing onto the ironclad in ones and twos. This delay proved fatal. Crewmen on the Kotetsu swiftly manned the ironclad's deck-mounted Gatling gun and opened fire on the samurai. Meanwhile, the other Imperial ships began to draw close, threatening to block off the Kaiten's escape. Togo and his fellow sailors on the Kasuga did not dare fire the ship's main guns. Instead, they snatched up rifles and pistols, taking aim at specific enemy officers on the Kaiten. Uniformed officers were particularly obvious targets, and the Kaiten's captain, Koga Kengo, was hit in the right arm and left leg. Even as he tried to rally his men, a third bullet hit him in the throat, and he fell silent to the deck. The onslaught made similarly swift work of the swordsmen, leaving the Kotetsu's crewmen free to turn their machine gun on the Kaiten itself. Taking charge, Arai Ikunosuke successfully steered the Kaiten out of direct contact and steamed for safety. Out in the open sea, Eugene Kalash was entirely in the dark. The smoke from the initial exchange had swiftly obscured his view of developments, and he was forced to listen to the booms and bangs for twenty minutes, with no clue of who was winning. My men and I, he wrote, were in a state of overexcitement that was easy to understand. The battle was on barely a few hundred meters away, and we could not see a thing. The battle was on, and we were not even there. The first indication that Kalash had of events came with the sudden appearance of the Kaiten, powering out of the smoke and running for the north at full speed. Kalash frantically signaled for information, but the only clue he had was the thick black cloud vomiting from the Kaiten's smokestack. The Kaiten's boilers were at full power, and she was running away. When even a cannon shot failed to attract the Kaiten's attention, Kalash swung his ship to starboard and began to slowly steam after her, although the Kaiten was already traveling four times as fast as the jury-rigged Takao. The confused Kalash had only just completed his turn when he saw why the Kaiten was running. Barely a minute behind the fleeing ship came the Imperial fleet, in full battle array, with the ironclad Kotetsu in the lead. The Kasuga, with Togo aboard, was right behind her. The Kotetsu rammed into Kalash's ship without even stopping, shoving the Takao aside in her pursuit of the Kaiten. While Kalash frantically tried to regain control of his ship and stay on his feet, the Imperial vessels disdainfully ignored him in their eagerness to run down the great prize. The Kaiten, however, her boilers at full power, successfully made it out to sea and out of range. 
With her fires fully stoked, she was easily able to reach her top speed, while the Imperial ships, who seemed to have had to raise steam while under attack, were still relatively slow. Within half an hour, it was clear that the Kaiten would get away. The Imperial ships broke off pursuit and turned back towards Miyako, intent on dealing with the Takao. Realizing that he had no chance of getting away, Kalash resolved to run his ship aground and blow her up. He beached the Takao in shallow waters and tried to organize an orderly abandonment that moved essential supplies off the ship. Unfortunately, he observed, the Japanese didn't have any biscuits. This bizarre comment, in the midst of a chaotic evacuation, was based on the realization that the only food aboard ship came in the form of large sacks of rice, which were nowhere near as portable as standard naval provisions. In the midst of unloading, the beach to cow suddenly listed dangerously to one side, pitching men and materials into the water and causing Kalash's inexperienced men to panic. It took Kalash 30 minutes to evacuate the Takao. Kalash himself was the last to leave, and lit a fuse that ran into all the remaining powder in the ship's magazine. As he and his men picked their way across the rocks towards the shore, they suddenly heard the sound of guns. The Kasuga and Kotetsu had returned. As Kalash and his 70 men scrambled for safety under fire, the Takao exploded in a massive column of fire and smoke. Unquote. The loss of the Takao, a single small ship, does not end the hopes of the Republic of Izo. But the failure to seize the Kotetsu leaves the Imperial forces free to land. And within a few months, the last rebel forces are mopped up and the imperial government reigns supreme. By the way, uh, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, the former shogun, he is not among the remaining rebels. He had never joined the Republic of Izo. At this point, he is living a life of quiet retirement on the main island. Matter of fact, he will eventually return to government. In 1902, the Emperor Meiji will grant him the title of prince, the highest rank in the Japanese peerage, and he will even serve in the House of Peers, which is the Japanese imperial equivalent of the British House of Lords. So, despite losing the shogunate, he does okay for himself later in life. Regardless, by the end of 1869, the emperor has been well and truly restored to power and the Japanese Empire is once again at peace. But the Emperor Meiji, and to a larger extent his inner circle, including the heads of the Choshu and Satsuma domains, these people are still facing the same social problems the shogunate had been facing. Their solution of expelling Western traders has proven to be completely impractical, which is what the shoguns and Tokugawa counselors had been telling them in the first place. At this point, the emperor is getting a little bit older and he is starting to exert his own will. He regularly attends council meetings and gives his input whether or not it is wanted. He is determined to reform Japan, to make it into a modern industrial nation that is 
capable of making its own ironclad warships and railroads and things like that. At the same time, it's tough to say how much power the emperor actually has. See, the move to Tokyo has scattered the old imperial court. So instead of working with the courtiers he's known all of his life, Meiji's government is instead made up of major daimyos who had supported the winning side. There are several influential leaders from the Satsuma and Choshu domains in particular. A lot of the problems that follow are a result of how the government is organized. The emperor is head of state and theoretically rules as a complete autocrat. But he doesn't actually issue rulings on his own. He rules through a prime minister, a man named Sancho Sanatomi, who turns out to be completely useless, and we will never mention him again because he does nothing. Uh, but uh, a lot of the actual power really falls to government ministers. In and of itself, this is not unusual. Think of the American government or the British government or pretty much any government these days, right? You have a chief executive and then various secretaries or ministers, depending on what your government calls them. And you, know, you have a secretary of state who handles foreign relations and so on and so forth. What the Meiji cabinet is, at least in these early times, is fairly disorganized. The actual ministers, the senior ministers who meet in council and you know, will actually sit down with the emperor, they're all ministers without portfolio. This basically means that they're cabinet-level officials, but they don't directly oversee part of the government. Instead, there are other ministers who are also cabinet-level officials who oversee the various ministries. These are the people who actually oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the government, but they're not the ones sitting on the council with the emperor. So when the emperor sits down and meets with his top people, he's not meeting with any of the people who actually run the government. Those people simply implement the council's rulings, which are ostensibly based on the emperor's wishes. And all of these people come from different clans and domains from around the empire. Top-down communications are unclear and often contradictory, and bottom-up communications are garbled at best. Right? The right hand generally has no idea what the left hand is doing. You can see how this makes it hard to govern a country. Imagine if the president never sat down with the secretary of state, but instead sat down with somebody else who then went and talked to the secretary of state. It would be ridiculous, but that's what's going on here. And surprisingly, the Meiji government is actually able to push through a number of reforms. Well, push probably isn't the best word. See, a lot of these reforms are in the interest of the empire at large, and a lot of them are in the interest of the actual people and leadership. So, in many cases, there's no pushing required. One of the first things the Meiji government does is abolish what's called the Han system. The Han system is this old feudal Japanese system where the various daimyos rule more or less independently over their own domains, or Hans. Instead, 
The old Hans are now going to be ruled directly by the emperor as imperial prefectures. This process actually starts to take place during the Boshin War. It begins in 1868 with the seizure of the Tokugawa lands and those of their allies, accounting for about a quarter of Japan right there. Then, in 1869, the leaders of Choshu and Satsuma domains do something that shocks everybody. They voluntarily hand over title of their lands to the emperor. Fearing to appear less loyal than the leaders of the imperial cause, all but 14 of the leaders of the other domains do the same thing. Then the emperor puts out a decree seizing the lands of those remaining 14 daimyos and threatening to seize them by force if the daimyos don't comply. Now, at first glance, it seems bizarre that the daimyos would go along with this, but it's all been worked out in advance. See, the emperor can't possibly administer all of Japan by himself. That would be too complicated. Instead, there's going to be a governor for each prefecture. And after all, we have all of these daimyos who are intimately familiar with their prefectures, so now the daimyos are going to become civil governors. And there's a little bit more in the deal to sweeten the pot for both sides. If you're a daimyo, you don't just get to keep governing your lands. You also get a tax break. Taxes in Japan at this time are paid in rice, and traditionally each domain has owed the shogun 10% of their nominal rice production. This nominal production is what the province theoretically should be producing. But if there's a flood or a drought or there's some kind of fungal outbreak, the rice crop is going to be less than the nominal production. So during the hardest years, even when people are starving, the daimyos have needed to pay the full tax. They've had to come up with that 10% of the full nominal amount. And now taxes are going to be 10% of your actual production. So if there's a crop shortage, your people aren't going to be subjected to further suffering. To sweeten things for the emperor, and indeed also for the common people, the position of governor is non-hereditary. The existing daimyos can continue in their roles and enjoy their public salaries, but as they age out, they're going to eventually be replaced, at least theoretically, by a merit-based system. The idea is that this will slowly phase out the old ruling families and keep traditional clan rivalries from causing friction within the new government. All of this is good for the former daimyos and for the country overall, but it leaves out one huge group of people, the samurai. Without the feudal system, who is going to pay their salaries? You might think that the solution is simple. The samurai are professional soldiers, so why not just form a national army made up entirely of samurai? Well, during the Boshin War, both sides tried this. And the problem is that with a modern army, you need more troops than just your samurai, so you end up adding a bunch of conscripts. And when you have the kind of class distinctions you have in Japan during this time, this leads to all kinds of trouble. 
In the Boshin War, you have segregated forces with separate samurai and non-samurai military units. And the samurai refuse to take on certain jobs that they consider beneath them. They insist on wearing nicer uniforms, and the whole military organization gets bogged down in questions of social status. And the new government responds to this by trying to alleviate some of the social questions. They elevate the common people in certain ways. For one thing, the commoners are now allowed to use their surname in public, which was never allowed under the old caste system. The old sumptuary laws, those are the laws regulating which classes of people can wear what clothes, those are abolished. There's also mandatory education. We talked in the last episode about the Japanese being amongst the most literate societies on earth, especially in the 16 and 1700s. But by this time in the West, it is not just the elite that are getting educations. In more and more places, ordinary, everyday people are sending their kids to school. This is a new thing back then. But the, the result is that literacy rates are skyrocketing in the West, and the Japanese literacy rates have been stagnating. Well, they're going to fix that. They are going to send all Japanese children to school, just like in the West. A modern nation requires an educated populace, and the Meiji government wants their children to be every bit as educated as British, French, and American children. What we're looking at is partly a response to modern realities. That army that fought in the Boshin War, they started out with many of their troops armed with spears, and they end fighting with ironclads and gatling guns and other 19th century marvels of technology. Japan will not be able to fight its next war with a small corps of elite warriors. It will need a larger conscript army armed with the latest rifles, artillery, and other equipment. But these army reforms are also designed to further embed control within the central government. Remember, the samurai have traditionally been sworn to individual daimyos. And in the previous system, uh, you relied on local daimyos fighting on the side of the shogun. If there's... Another disagreement between various daimyo, even if they're technically local governors, there's a risk that you could have rival factions of samurai once again taking up arms on different sides. By centralizing the army, you reduce that risk. And you reduce it even further by introducing a bunch of commoners into the army, people who are not part of the Japanese Game of Thrones, so to speak. They have no skin in that game. Now, this isn't all bad for the samurai, right? The samurai are still free to serve in the military. Many of them do, but only if they swear loyalty to the empire, not to their former lords. Samurai who are unwilling to do that are given government stipends, so it's not like they're starving in the street, even if they're not serving in the army. But this represents a huge loss of social status, and that's a big deal when social status is a huge part of your society. The process 
of building a national army is slow. And in the meantime, Japan is still going to rely on many of the old samurai. They are the ones with military training. You have to train your conscripts. And as the national army is built, part of the army becomes dominated by the Choshu clan, under their leader Yamagata Aritomo. And part of it becomes dominated by the Satsuma clan, under their commander-in-chief, Saigo Takamori. In his book, Curse on This Country, The Rebellious Army of Imperial Japan, American military historian Danny Orbach describes how this takes place. He writes, quote, In February 1871, Yamagata Eritomo from Choshu, Takasugi Shinsaku's lieutenant in the Restoration Wars, had told Saigo, his Satsuma counterpart, that as long as the central government was not backed by military force, the restoration was only nominal. Using an economic metaphor, he reiterated that the government was gambling with borrowed money. Saigo agreed, and the two decided to establish a central military force, Goshimpe, composed of troops taken from the three major restoration domains, Choshu, Satsuma, and Tosa. In his negotiations with his non-Choshu counterparts, however, Yamagata made it clear that the new force belonged to no domain, but to the central government alone. Soldiers, he maintained, may have to fight on command even the lords of their own domains. On February 12, 1872, the Goshimpe were renamed the Imperial Guard, Kanoe, investing them with the prestige of direct service to the emperor. Yamagata, promoted in summer 1871 to Deputy Lord of War, was the strong man in the ministry, as his lord, an imperial prince, was absent from office most of the time. However, the imperial guard was very difficult to control. It was almost exclusively comprised of Shizoku, many of them notoriously unreliable, rebellious, and mutinous former samurai from Satsuma and Tosa. Worryingly, some of them were also involved in attacks against foreigners endangering Japan's delicate relations with the Western powers. As Kido suspected, it was not easy to secure cooperation between soldiers from different domains, each with its own unique traditions, customs, identity, and dialect. According to Xianting Qin, the troops were deeply imbued with the old Han loyalties. They regarded themselves as the soldiers of Satsuma, or Choshu, or Tosa, rather than as the soldiers of Japan the nation. The Imperial Guard units were only formally subordinate to Yamagata and his army ministry, but actually obeyed individual Imperial counselors who had led them during the Restoration Wars. In an attempt to cope with this situation, Yamagata proceeded to create another military force, exclusively subordinate to his ministry. These were the military garrisons across Japan, beefed up and augmented by the Conscription Act of October 10, 1873. In order to appease the restive officers of the Imperial Guard, the government had to tap on the influence and prestige of Saigo Takamori. In October 1872, Saigo was appointed by the cabinet as leading Imperial Counselor, Commander-in-Chief of the Imperial Guard and Field Marshal of the Army, the only one to hold this rank at the time. Under such conditions, the domanial fault lines in the armed forces were becoming increasingly clear. 
Yamagata and the Choshu faction controlled most garrisons across the country, while Saigo presided over the Imperial Guard and the National Police. Thus, coming full circle, Satsuma and Choshu held again their own independent military forces, exactly replicating the situation which the founders of the Imperial Army had intended to avoid. Unquote. All sides know that this situation is a powder keg ready to erupt, and the Imperial Council considers a number of possible solutions. An opportunity presents itself when Korea, itself a mostly isolated kingdom at this time, refuses to recognize the new imperial government, instead insisting that the shogunate was more legitimate since they did not trade with Westerners. They begin harassing Japanese traders and even diplomats. This insult to Japanese honor creates a war faction in the government. Some people think that if they go to war with the Koreans, they'll be able to solve some problems. For one thing, they will give all the disaffected samurai something to do. The warriors from all the domains will be fighting in a united war against a common enemy. This will depressurize the system by letting the samurai do what they do best. At the same time, Japan's military is still modernizing, and a war with Korea could give the newly formed military organizations the ability to test out new weapons and tactics on a real battlefield. Most importantly, a foreign war would keep the Choshu and Satsuma domains from turning against each other and maintain the domestic peace. The loudest supporter of the war faction is Saigo Takamori, the head of the Imperial Guard, field marshal of the army. He'd been one of the first of Satsuma leaders to recognize the need to modernize their military in the first place. He was a major leader in the Boshin War. He has credentials, and now he's adamant about going to war with Korea. This guy is an honest-to-goodness, old-school samurai, with all the old samurai values, and he comes up with an insane plan to get the war started. Saigo Takamori wants to go to Korea as a diplomat, and then behave in as insulting a way as he possibly can. He's going to be so insulting to the Koreans that they will have him killed. And this will give Japan a pretext to go to war. Oddly enough, the peace faction in the government is also led by someone from Satsuma Domain, Okubo Toshimichi, the finance minister. On September 13, 1873, he and some other ministers return from a long trip abroad called the Iwakura Mission. This was a mission to Europe and the United States to try and renegotiate some of the unequal trade treaties that the Japanese are upset about. The efforts to renegotiate the treaties have so far been a failure, but Okubo Toshimichi and the others who traveled to the West have seen Western industrial might with their own eyes. These ministers are convinced that Japan needs to do a tremendous amount of modernization. Before they so much as think about a war, they need to be building things like factories and railroads. The last thing they need right now is to get sucked into some expeditionary war that the young government can barely afford. 
Okubo gives a passionate speech against any Korean expedition. The cabinet holds a vote, and the war party comes out on top. Okubo then resigns from his position in the cabinet, but he goes around the rest of the cabinet's back and appeals directly to the Emperor Meiji, and the Emperor orders the invasion called off. In response, several prominent members of the war party resign, including Saigo Takamori, who goes back to Satsuma. By the end of 1873, Okubo Toshimichi is back in the cabinet as Lord of Home Affairs, a position that makes him the most powerful man in Japan. For now, the government itself remains stable, and even the balance of power in the military seems to be maintained. Yamagata Eritomo from Choshu Domain still controls the army, while the Imperial Guard and police are nominally under the command of Saigo Takamori's younger brother, Saigo Tsugimichi. But many of the Satsuma officers and men have quietly left their posts in Tokyo, accompanying Takamori into self-imposed exile. To further reduce the status of the samurai class, the government converts the samurai's annual stipends into government bonds in 1876. This reduces government costs, but it also leaves many samurai without any meaningful income. In fact, the government actually abolishes the samurai class, although samurai are now known as shizoku, which means samurai families. For many samurai, this is a non-issue. After all, the samurai are still the most educated people in the land, for the most part. That public school system is still pretty young. They can become successful merchants or craftsmen. Many even go into military-related industries, such as gunsmithing. But for other samurai, the transition to civilian life is difficult. We see this phenomenon in every war, to some extent. Soldiers go into combat, and they come home changed. They've seen horrible things, things they don't want to talk about, but at the same time, nothing can equal the adrenaline rush of combat, and a lot of veterans struggle with this. And a lot of them even go into jobs like firefighting and police work, which are the closest civilian equivalent to going into combat. Well, the problem with these disaffected samurai is much worse. These aren't just people who served in the military at one point. These are people who were raised from infancy in a warrior lifestyle. And they live by a code called Bushido, which means the way of the warrior. Now, there's a lot of confusion about Bushido in the West. Because we Westerners mostly learned about Bushido from a book called Bushido, the Soul of Japan an exposition of Japanese thought. This book was written in English in 1905, and it was written by a Japanese man named Inazo Nitobi. Now, you might think that a Japanese source would be ideal for an explanation of Bushido. But Nitobi is the wrong individual for the job. As British historian and samurai expert Stephen Turnbull writes in his book The Samurai... Quote, Bushido, the soul of Japan, is a very curious work. Its author was born in 1863, but was shielded from the turbulence of the Meiji Restoration, 
first by the education he received in schools where the main medium of teaching was English, then by the Christianity he espoused and to which he remained dedicated all his life, and finally through a certain physical isolation in Hokkaido. The result was a highly literate scholar with a keen sense of internationalization, whose immersion in a Western education of the English public school variety, often referred to as muscular Christianity, was equaled only by his stunning lack of knowledge of Japanese culture. This would not have mattered had he not produced a book about Japan that was to become an international bestseller outside Japan and a cornerstone of right-wing nationalism within it. Although he willingly admitted his ignorance of vital topics such as Zen Buddhism, Natobi's book, with its strange blend of samurai myths and Tom Brown's school days, became regarded as the Bible of Bushido. Central to Natobi's presentation of Bushido as the warrior's code is his identification of seven key values. Justice, courage, benevolence, politeness, veracity, honor, and loyalty. In the same way that critics of Shinto's official line of history readily acknowledge the pre-existence of kami worship, so it must be recognized that all these virtues were present in Japan in pre-Meiji times. All indeed are splendid ideals that would have graced the halls of a daimyo's castle and then transformed his sword-wielding samurai into brush-wielding exemplars of Tokugawa society. Where Natobi exceeded his brief was to assume that they made up a rigid warrior's code called Bushido. Natobi presents Bushido as a code that was ancient and universally adhered to by the samurai, who effectively swore to obey it like a version of the Hippocratic Oath. Such was the popularity of Natobi's work that not only was all of this fully accepted, but his other misconception, that Bushido was a moral force that had become in modern times the soul of Japan, became true by default as a self-fulfilling prophecy. In an age that actively sought fundamental values for a rapidly changing society, Natobi's thesis was exactly what early 20th century Japan wanted to hear. Prior to Natobi, a wide range of expressions, all meaning the way of the warrior, may be found in the literature, such as Shido and Budo. The first syllables are the same as in Bushido. But where the actual term Bushido appears, the meaning is always that of a general attitude, rather than a rigid accepted code known to all. Natobi's book does, however, make it clear that Bushido was less concerned with the individual samurai than with the relationships the samurai had with others, of which the most important was that between master and follower. One of the finest expressions of this relationship comes from Tori Motodata, who wrote a last letter to his son in 1600, prior to the fall of Fushimi Castle, which he had defended so valiantly for Tokugawa Ieyasu. Quote within the quote, For myself, I am resolved to make a stand inside the castle and to die a quick death. It would not be difficult to break through the enemy and escape, but that is not the true meaning of being a warrior, and it would be difficult to account as loyalty. To show one's enemy one's weakness is not within the family traditions of my master Ieyasu. It is not the way of the warrior to be shamed and avoid death, even under circumstances that are not particularly important. It goes without saying that to sacrifice life for one's master is an unchanging principle. End of the quote within the quote. Tori Motodata sees his conduct as being in keeping with the tradition of service to the ideals of the Tokugawa family, rather than being driven by a code. 
He goes on to remind his son of their family and its relationship with the Tokugawa, referring to the benevolence of their lord and the blessings they had received at his hands. It is this relationship that is key to his behavior, not some abstract philosophical principle. That Torimotodata's master recognized his own obligation in giving benevolence is shown by the document that the first Tokugawa shogun left for the instruction of his followers. The Toshogu Goiken, effectively the testament of Tokugawa Ieyasu, was first published during the reign of his grandson, the third Tokugawa shogun, Iemitsu. In language curiously reminiscent of the Chinese concept of the mandate of heaven, the Tokugawa had been divinely entrusted with ruling Japan in the way of heaven, Tendo. But if that rule were exercised badly, the mandate could be withdrawn. To Ieyasu, the way of the warrior had been since ancient times the means by which the shogun had purified the realm of evil. The quality of Chu, loyalty, was the virtue required of inferiors, while their leaders responded with Jihi, benevolence, which was the hallmark of a peaceful and just government. In a curious analogy made with the Japanese imperial regalia, the three cardinal virtues in achieving a harmonious outcome were wisdom, the principle of the mirror, benevolence, the principle of the sword, and straightforwardness, the principle of the jewel. Unquote. Whatever you want to call it, Bushido, the way of the warrior, the samurai lifestyle, many samurai are still living in the past and they see no place for themselves in the new order. And so you end up with a series of flare-ups and local rebellions by groups of unemployed, angry samurai. One uprising, the 1874 Saga Rebellion, involves 14,000 samurai, and the entire army has to be mobilized to end it. Ito Shinpei, the leader of the rebellion, had been in the cabinet until 1873, when he resigned from the government along with Saigo Takamori and the other members of the war party. When the rebellion ends, he is beheaded, and Okuba Toshimichi, the lord of home affairs who basically runs the government, hangs a photograph of Ito's severed head on the wall of his office. During this time, the Satsuma prefecture is becoming a sanctuary for some of these disaffected samurai. Saigo Takamori the guy who had been willing to get himself killed to provoke a war with Korea, uh, he is living there, and he has established a network of 120 schools throughout Satsuma. But these aren't just any schools. These are traditional samurai schools, where students learn the way of the warrior. It's open to interpretation whether Saigo is a traditionalist who wants to preserve the old ways in an academic sense, or whether he's building his own private army. But it's significant that all students at the schools swear an oath to be faithful to Satsuma until death, and they sign this oath in their own blood. Even more samurai flocked to Satsuma in 1876. That year, the imperial government officially bans everyone other than police and regular army from carrying weapons in public. For centuries, the most distinctive visual feature of the samurai has been the two swords that they traditionally carry. These swords are no longer practical. 
and they're hard to wear with Western clothing, which is becoming the standard throughout most of Japan. So most people don't care, but if you're an old-school traditionalist samurai who is sensitive about your honor, this is a big deal, and this decree leads to a new outbreak of small rebellions. Now, Satsuma does not rebel yet, but her samurai are still carrying their swords in defiance of the national law. In Satsuma's capital city, Kagoshima, there are now over 7,000 students in Saigo's school, with many of the 120 or so other schools training 500 or even 1,000 students. It's becoming more and more apparent that there are two Japans. There is the modern Japan, led by the imperial government and occupying most of the empire, and there's the traditional Japan, located in the Satsuma domain on the southern island of Kyushu. A Japanese newspaper article from the period sums things up well. Quote, There appear to be two great distinct parties in this country, one of which may be termed the party of the government, the other the Satsuma party. What must be the result of such a division? When two parties like these are in constant conflict, both cannot continue to exist for any great space of time. Should the government party be worsted in the struggle, the Satsuma men would take the reins, and this is clear to everyone. When Saigo resigned, the people thought in this way. Saigo's views differ from those of his colleagues, and he has resigned because it would be incompatible with his sense of honor to remain with them. This act does not spring from any want of interest in political affairs, for if the other counselors of state had said that they would adopt his views, he would probably have remained in office. But as the government again and again had to induce him to return to Tokyo, the people argued that Saigo was not desirous of working with the present cabinet. It is clear, therefore, that the Satsuma party has its own designs and is averse to the present government. There are minor parties in the country, such as those which contend for a return to the feudal system, but their only chance of obtaining their wishes and aims is to unite with the Satsuma party. Thus, we may expect that all the disaffected will be found in Kagoshima. What is going on in Kagoshima, and what is Saigo doing? Are the principal questions asked by the people? If the government wishes to preserve peace in the country, what policies should it adopt? As we said before, both parties cannot long exist. Unquote. What is going on in Kagoshima? To find out, the national government dispatches a team of police investigators to infiltrate the Kagoshima school. At the same time, a naval force is dispatched to the arsenal at Kagoshima. This arsenal is full of rifles, ammunition, and even artillery, and it nominally belongs to the national government, but the officials in charge of the arsenal are all Saigo's men. The plan is to go in and empty the arsenal quietly overnight and sail away with the contents before daybreak. But the plot is discovered, and thousands of Saigo's students riot. They prevent the national troops from seizing the arsenal and instead raid it for themselves. The Kagoshima school now has the same weapons the national government is using. A few days later, one of the police investigators at the Kagoshima school tells one of his friends what he's up to. 
the friend turns out to be a spy for the school. And on February 3rd, 1877, Saigo's men capture and torture the police to find out what they're up to. One of them finally confesses that they were sent to assassinate Saigo Takamori. Now, this is almost certainly not true. People will say anything under torture if they think that what they're saying will make the torturer stop. But it's enough that Saigo's followers believe that there is a threat to their leader. Copies of the confession are printed and distributed throughout the 120 branch schools and even shown to Saigo Takamori himself. Since resigning from the government in 1873, Saigo has been living a quiet life and has been careful not to say or do anything to encourage his followers to revolt. He's spent much of his time fishing, reading poetry, and engaging in other apolitical pursuits. He seems to have been biding his time, and historians disagree about what he's been planning with this private school system. The most plausible explanation, at least in my opinion, is that he's not planning a rebellion. He's building his strength and waiting for a foreign war to break out. If Japan goes to war with Korea or China, he can take his private army to the front, win glory on the battlefield, and with that prestige, he'll be able to take control of the government by legal means. Part of the evidence for this is that there don't seem to actually be any plans for a rebellion. Saigo is an experienced military man, and the idea that he would start a rebellion without planning it first, you know, figuring out logistics and things like that, well, it seems pretty far-fetched. But when he is presented with a signed confession stating that these police were sent by the government to kill him, He's understandably furious. Even so, he does not rebel against the emperor. He plans to appeal directly to the emperor and force the lord of home affairs, Okuba Toshimichi, who had sent the police, out of the government. Okuba will doubtless try to interfere with Saigo, so Saigo doesn't go to Tokyo alone. Instead, he calls up all of his samurai along with his students from the schools, those who were qualified, and marches towards the capital under arms. Even at this point, he's not in official rebellion. He is simply marching at the head of his troops to pay a visit to the emperor. And to signify this, he actually wears his old field marshal's uniform, given to him by the national government. Saigo can't simply march his army to Tokyo. Tokyo is on the main island of Honshu, so he's going to need ships to get there. And the closest place he can obtain sea transport for an army is at the port city of Nagasaki in northwestern Kyushu. Kagoshima is all the way down in southwestern Kyushu, so Saigo has to march his 15,000-strong army across the length of the island. And in between him and Nagasaki stands a single imperial garrison at Kumamoto Castle, which is about halfway between Kagoshima and Nagasaki. 
This garrison had recently suffered serious losses in a suicide attack by rebel samurai, so Saigo expects the garrison of 3,800 men to simply let him pass. Instead, when he arrives outside Kumamoto, the road is blocked by Imperial troops. Before I go any further, I do want to clear up a misconception. I've already talked a lot about weapons and how the rebels have seized rifles and ammunition and even artillery. But there is a strong public perception in the West, in particular, that this civil war, known as the Satsuma Rebellion, is fought between fully modernized regular army troops and a bunch of nostalgic fools with samurai swords. Personally, I blame the Hollywood movie The Last Samurai, which combines the Boshin War and Satsuma Rebellion into one and uses a bunch of made-up characters instead of real historical figures. That annoys me. Are Saigo's men carrying swords? Absolutely. But they carry them for close quarters fighting. Their primary weapon is their rifle, just like the Imperial troops. These are not stupid men. Well, most of them have older muzzle-loading Enfield rifles, but some of them are carrying the newer model breech-loading Snyder rifles. The problem is not a lack of proper equipment. It's a lack of raw numbers and ultimately a shortage of ammunition. On February 19th and 20th, the two sides face off. Ultimately, the Imperial forces are the first to open fire on the morning of the 21st. But Saigo's troops quickly force them back into Kumamoto Castle. This is an ancient stone fortress, and while Saigo does have some artillery, he doesn't have enough to blast the castle into rubble, so he opts to surround it instead. Saigo Takamori does not have time for a long siege. Imperial troops are already on their way from the main island to reinforce the garrison. The clock is ticking. At the same time, the castle's defenders have made their position clear. If he can't defeat them, Saigo can't simply go on to Nagasaki and sail to Tokyo. The castle could be used as a base for more Imperial troops to gather and then launch an attack on his capital at Kagoshima. So Saigo divides his army. He sends 3,000 men to the northwest of the castle and 2,000 to the southeast to attack in a pincher movement. He holds 3,400 men in reserve to follow up on any penetration into the castle. The rest of his army is in the countryside, in smaller groups, patrolling the roads and keeping an eye out for any imperial reinforcements. The attack begins on February 22nd. First, Saigo orders messages to be sent to the castle, offering safe passage for anyone who surrenders. These messages are written on tiny scrolls that are attached to arrows and fired over the walls. This is outdated, but it's a traditional Japanese way to exchange messages during a battle. 
Unfortunately for Saigo Takamori, none of the defenders takes him up on his offer. As the siege continues, Saigo has to further divide his forces, dispatching 2,000 men to the north to block the Imperial Army approaching from that direction. But his forces are also bolstered by thousands of samurai volunteers flocking to join this new and unplanned rebellion. So, in total, Saigo ends up gaining around 10,000 to 15,000 men. At the point where he has the most men, he may have as many as 35,000. Soon he's going to need them. An imperial army of 90,000 men approaches from the north. They have landed in Nagasaki and they are on their way to relieve the castle. So Saigo sends 13,000 more men to join the existing 2,000 men in that northern blocking force. And they try to prevent this reinforcement army from progressing down the road to link up with the Kumamoto garrison. Most of the rest of Saigo's army is still besieging the castle. It's not going well, they're not making any progress, and some of them have been sent to the south. See, Saigo left Kagoshima undefended, and a small imperial force of around 1,200 men, half of them police, uh, this force has attacked it in a raid and arrested the local governor and confiscated all the city's arms and ammunition. And for good measure, they've spiked all the defensive cannons so they are no good. There is a chance at this point that another force may be landed in the south. Saigo is aware of this, so he dispatches this smaller force to the south to try and defend on that front. So now he's besieging a castle, he's holding off an imperial army from the north, and he's sending more people down south to block an anticipated attack from that direction. He's fighting on three fronts. Dividing the army this way turns out to be ineffective. For one thing, despite intense bombardment, Kumamoto's castle's defenders remain determined. After seven weeks of siege, they're eating gruel, and they've even mostly drained the inner moat to make it easier to catch fish. Despite the fact that this makes the castle harder to defend, they need food, but they're still holding on, and with fewer besiegers, that's easy to do. Meanwhile, uh, Saigo's 15,000-man blocking force to the north is not sufficient to hold off a 90,000-man army, and they slowly get pushed back almost all the way to Kumamoto. And eventually, the Imperial force is able to link up with the castle and get in some badly needed supplies. And then in early April, an additional army lands in southern Kyushu. Right, That army that Saigo was worried about that might show up, now it shows up, and it approaches towards Kumamoto from that direction. Saigo's about to be surrounded, and on April 19th, he decides to abandon the siege, uh, lest he should lose his entire army. And uh, at this point, Saigo's army falls back to the eastern Kyushu prefecture of Hyuga, 
This is an area where they have strong local support. And there's also a local arms industry to replenish their ammunition. Imperial forces give chase, with an additional 10,000 troops sent from the mainland to drive the rebels out. By mid-July, that effort is successful, and Saigo's men are forced north, away from Huga's industry. And the Imperials surround the area, trying to just bottle up these rebels, but Saigo manages to break out, and nobody on the Imperial side, knows where he is. On September 1st, 1877, Saigo Takamori arrives back in Kagoshima with the remnant of his army. 500 samurai, prepared to continue on with their rebellion. They round up all available weapons and ammunition and occupy the hill of Shirayama outside the city. On September 2nd, an Imperial reconnaissance mission locates them, and Yamagata Aritomo, the commander-in-chief of the army, leads an Imperial force of 30,000 to crush the rebellion once and for all. Over the next three weeks, Yamagata builds earthworks and fortifications around Shirayama. Even with just a few men, Saigo could still escape again and rally more samurai to his cause, but Yamagata has no intention of letting him escape and is in little hurry to attack. His main objective is to hem Saigo in and ensure that he doesn't go anywhere. In fact, he is so intent on preventing Saigo from getting out that he orders that if Saigo tries to break out, his entire army is to open fire on the rebel soldiers, even at the risk of hitting their own men. As the earthworks are being built, the defenders are under near-constant bombardment. The Imperials also make a couple of feints against the defenses to keep Saigo's men on their back foot. This is a pretty well-defensible hill. It's got uh, sort of a cauldron-shaped top, so the people on top aren't directly exposed, and there are even some small caves up there to take shelter, but... At the end of the day, you're still sitting there under bombardment, and while these earthworks are being constructed, somewhere around 200 of Saigo's 500 samurai are killed. Now, they return fire as best they can, but they're so low on ammunition that they're reduced to melting down statues to make bullets. Those wounded, who are unlucky enough to require amputation, are forced to make do with a carpenter's saw, because that's all they have. Oh, and, of course, food is a constant concern. On September 23rd, the preparations for attack are finally complete, and the Imperials send Saigo an offer of unconditional surrender, which he refuses. That night, Saigo Takamori prepares himself to make a last stand. He plays the lute and performs an ancient sword dance. He even writes a poem. Quote, If I were a drop of dew, I could take shelter on a leaf tip. But, being a man, I have no place in this whole world. Unquote. 
The assault comes early on the morning of September 24, 1877. In his book, The Satsuma Rebellion, an episode of modern Japanese history, British diplomat Augustus H. Mouncey describes the final assault. Quote, Before dawn on the 24th of September, a tremendous shower of shells was poured on the summit of the hill, and under its cover and in the darkness, the assaulting parties quickly scaled its slopes. They reached its brow almost without loss, and thence fired volley upon volley with deadly effect into the rebel camp. Deceived by the previous feints, the rebels had been taken unawares and unprepared for a serious attack. Their batteries were seized and their gunners cut down at the first onslaught. Their guns were turned upon themselves. They resisted, as far as any men could resist, with their small arms, but the contest was too unequal to last. Saigo was amongst the first to fall, wounded by a bullet in the thigh. Thereupon, Hemijurida, one of his lieutenants, performed what samurai consider a friendly office. With one blow of his keen, heavy sword, he severed his chief's head from his shoulders in order to spare him the disgrace of falling alive into his enemy's hands. This done, Hemi handed the head to one of Saigo's servants for concealment and committed suicide. Saigo's head was buried, but so hurriedly that some of the hair remained exposed, and it was subsequently discovered by a coolie. Unquote. The last 40 samurai are out of ammunition and completely surrounded. In a last desperate act of defiance, they draw their swords and charge their 30,000 attackers. And every one of them is mowed down by Imperial Gatling gun fire. Say what you want about the old feudal system and its corruption. These men were true believers. They were fighting for ancient traditions, the way of life that they and their ancestors have lived for generations. In many ways, they're fighting for a culture that already no longer exists. But you don't go willingly to your death unless you deeply believe in what you're fighting for. And if you're wired the way I am, when you see that kind of sacrifice, it resonates. You don't want to think that these people gave their lives for nothing. Well, they didn't. At least, not exactly. Saigo Takamori's rebellion is the last samurai uprising, and it marks the end of the samurai era. But it also marks the beginning of something new. There's another influential statesman, a man named Itagi Taisuke. Itagi is a politician, not a fighter, and he's refused to fight in any rebellions. But as the head of the Society of Patriots, a political party, he wields great influence. Even in the midst of the Satsuma Rebellion, the Society of Patriots, which is made up mostly of former samurai, sends an official letter to the emperor. There are many complaints in the letter, all about the government and none about the emperor Meiji himself. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but they're actually calling for democracy. Remember, 
the first part of the emperor's charter oath. The oath he took in 1868 reads, Deliberative assemblies shall be established on an extensive scale, and all governmental matters shall be determined by public discussion. Here's what the Society of Patriots has to say about that. Quote, The samurai of Japan form a class that has existed since the Middle Ages. They were controlled by feudal lords, and their spirit of patriotism, though confined to their own provinces, was noble. They possessed great virtues. They hated the idea of disgrace. They were faithful to their lords, and they interested themselves in the affairs of their respective clans. The lord of a province and his chief advisers were restrained from acts of oppression by the watchfulness of the samurai of the clan, who could compel their feudal lord to transfer his duties to another member of his house, or enforce the resignation of an official. Since your majesty took the administration into your hands, the feudal system has been abolished and the samurai are no longer required. But the samurai still retained their rank and a certain portion of their rights in consideration of their being superior to the common people in education and knowledge. Steps should therefore be taken to render the people, by education, the equals of the samurai, so that they may be able to take the same interest in the affairs of their country and advance in happiness. This is the will of your majesty. But not only are the people prevented from taking any part in government, but efforts are being made to bring down the samurai to the same slavish level as the lower classes. No matter how cruel or despotic the edicts of their rulers may be, they are expected to make no remonstrance. A great mistake has been made in endeavoring to lower the samurai to the level of the common people. Encouragement should have been given to the latter to raise themselves to the level of the samurai. Instead of this, the government has acted in a directly contrary manner. Great consideration should be given to this question. The samurai have always taken part in the administration of the affairs of their various clans since the commencement of the feudal times. Their minds have thus been familiarized with political matters, and they are not content to be deprived of all their prerogatives. Although their services may be no longer required, their minds remain unchanged. It is owing to this that nearly all the insurrections that have taken place since the Restoration have been caused by the samurai. To raise a rebellion is undoubtedly wrong, but that the samurai should be driven to do so is certainly due to some mismanagement on the part of the government. This is the present condition of Japan. Public opinion is in no way consulted. Efforts are made to hold both the samurai and the common folk in absolute slavery. They are granted no political rights. They have no control over their own welfare. What does your majesty suppose is the cause of all this misery? Unquote. In May 1878, less than a year after Saigo's last stand, the tyrannical lord of home affairs, Okubo Toshimichi, is riding in a carriage from his house to the imperial palace. As the carriage passes through a wooded valley, two samurai, disguised as peasants, suddenly draw swords, hamstring the horses, and kill the driver. Four more samurai rush out of the woods and attack the carriage. 
Okubo raises his hand over his head to defend himself, but the first sword stroke cuts it off and puts a gash in his skull. He falls to the ground and is killed by a violent flurry of stabs and slashes. The samurai run off, later turn themselves in and confess. These are former samurai of Saigo Takamori, and they have taken their revenge. Ironically, Okubo's body is discovered by Saigo Takamori's younger brother, Saigo Tsugumichi, who you will recall had remained loyal to the government. More reasonable ministers take control after Okubo's passing, and they start to consider more drastic reforms. Itagi Taisuke's party, the Society of Patriots, becomes part of a broader reform movement called the Freedom and People's Rights Movement. This movement pushes for broader political reforms, which culminates in 1889 with the signing of the Meiji Constitution. The Meiji Constitution establishes a very limited democracy, and in practice only wealthy men are able to vote, and most control remains with the oligarchy and the military. It won't be until the end of World War II that Japan becomes a true liberal democracy. Even so, the Meiji Constitution represents a huge step forward for the Japanese people. It guarantees freedom of speech, assembly, and religion. It establishes legal due process and guarantees freedom of movement, the freedom from unreasonable search and seizure, and many other rights. In the same year, 1889, only 12 years after the end of the Satsuma Rebellion, the Emperor Meiji issues an official pardon for Saigo Takamori. Was he a rebel? Yes, but it seems he was an unwilling one. And when he fought, he fought for traditional Japanese values. So, even as the emperor inaugurates a new, more egalitarian era, he uses this pardon to pay respect to the samurai and their ancient history. Now a modern country... Japan rapidly catches up with Western industry and technology. Emperor Meiji reigns from 1868 to 1912. And if you went into a long Rip Van Winkle-style sleep in 1868 and woke up in 1912, you would barely recognize Japan. Here are a few numbers that I've blatantly cribbed from Wikipedia but they're a good way to illustrate Japan's growth in that time. In 1868, Japan produces 1,026 tons of silk. In 1912, they produced 12,460 tons. In 1875, Japan only produces around 600,000 tons of coal. In 1913, they produced 21.3 million tons. In 1873, Japan has 26 steamships in her merchant fleet. In 1913, they have 1,514 steamships. In 1872, Japan lays its first 18 miles of railroad track. By 1914, 
there are over 7,100 miles of Japanese track. This is an incredible transformation. Arguably, the Meiji Restoration and the Meiji period more broadly represent the most impressive, deliberate reform of a government in human history. But nationhood is about more than just a country's government or its industry. It's about culture and history, language and religion, art and music, clothing and tradition. Saigo Takamori and his samurai represent all of those things. And they're still regarded as heroes by many Japanese today. And that's why their story is relevant. Guess who? It's me again, Dan, and I'm here just to tell you about a few things we're doing to expand the channel here at Relevant History. The first thing that we're doing is a series called Dan's War College. This is a series of exclusive videos from yours truly detailing various military battles and tactics in history and breaking down how they worked in a little more detail than we do here on the main show. If you're interested in that, it is a Patreon exclusive. The link for the Relevant History Patreon is in the description, and the monthly fee for the subscription is $5. By the way, with that, you also get access to a private Discord chat room with yours truly. And yes, I take requests. For those Patreon videos. Of course, not everybody is able to or wants to contribute financially, and that's just fine. I'm glad you're listening. But if you enjoy the show, why not share it with a friend? Help grow the audience and share something you love with somebody who might enjoy it. Also, it never hurts to leave a review. People are more likely to listen if they see a show with a bunch of reviews, particularly good ones, but eh, if you hated the show, go ahead and leave a review saying that, too. Tell me why you didn't like it. Alternatively, you could just reach out to me on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan T-O-L-E-R Podcast. You can also reach me at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com if you think that I've made an error in one of the episodes or you just wanted to say hello. Finally, to find all of my episodes with links to all the various subscription services and podcast feeds as well as my blog, which I have not updated in ages, but eh, you never know. You can find all of that at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks for listening.